We'll start this morning with a brief quote from Pope Leo XIII. The moment man ceases to be in fear of God, he is deprived of the most necessary basis of justice, without which society cannot exist. The authority of rulers will lose its weight, the laws of the land will lose their force, the integrity of rights will be threatened. Those who rule will easily be led to exceed the proper limits of their authority. Moreover, every human society which does its utmost to exclude God from its laws and its constitution rejects the help of this divine goodness and deserves also that help should be denied it. Rich and powerful as it appears, that society bears within itself the seeds of death and cannot hope for a lengthy existence. Pope Leo XIII, February 8, 1884. Rich and as powerful as it appears, that society, which does its utmost to exclude God from its laws and constitution, bears within itself the seeds of death and cannot hope for a lengthy existence. Now, in that regard, a little news update. Quote, with back-to-school season in full swing across the nation, parents in Oregon have more to worry about than shopping for sweaters and purchasing pencils. In the state of Oregon, the Obamacare mandate, which went into effect on August 1st, provides free sterilizations to students as young as 15. Now your high school freshmen can choose, without your consent, to be permanently sterilized. Close quote. In the 80s, I taught in a public high school in Oregon. The moral climate was shocking then. Don't think for even a moment there won't be any pressure on young people to get free sterilizations, at least in the public schools. There'll be plenty of pressure. It'll come from both their peers as well as some of their teachers and counselors. Might be a good time to start the practice of the family rosary if you don't have it yet. We shouldn't be under any illusions as to the direction our country is headed. Okay. Now we'll uh, consider one of the latest attacks coming from one of the intellectual pygmies in Richard Dawkins' Lodge of the New Atheists. The philosophical part of my response will rely principally upon the work of Alice Nelson, Dr. Don Bolin, Tommy Sephardis, and uh, Andrew Nemo. They're all Thomistic philosophers in the school of the late great Australian priest, uh, Father Austin Woodbury. For the the sake of time and clarity, I won't point out their quotes. The real credit must go to them, and any mistakes, of course, are mine. So before we turn to the problem itself, we'll need to spend a few minutes talking about something which is commonly denied by many folks these days, and that is truth. Truth. There are two common usages for the word truth. Truth commonly refers to either truth in understanding, that is to say, truth in our judgment, or truth in speech. Now this morning we'll only consider truth in our judgment. Truth in our judgment means the agreement of our mind with a thing, like this is my thumb, 
and that's a microphone, and that's a picture of Our Lady. What do we just do? We made judgments, which either do or do not correspond to reality. For example, if I make this judgment, this is my hand, and indeed it is, uh, then the judgment agrees with reality, and so we say it's true. If I look over here and say, well, there's a picture of St. Maria Goretti. Uh, That's not a picture of St. Maria Goretti. Obviously, that's Our Lady, so my judgment doesn't agree with reality, so we say it's false. The mind does not agree with the thing. So judgment which agrees with reality is true. It's my hand. Error falsity is a ju- means a judgment which doesn't agree with reality. Uh, that's a picture of St. Maria Goretti. Truth is a correspondence between the mind and the thing. It's a judgment which agrees with reality, a correspondence between the mind and the thing. So let's ask ourselves a question. When we're speaking of this kind of truth, of truth and understanding, is there an objective standard? Does an objective standard of truth and understanding, truth and judgment exist? The answer is, of course it does. The objective standard is reality. The facts, the things we're dealing with. Either this is my hand, or it isn't. So, it's, how do we know that it's my hand? By, it's connected to me. It's just by inspection, okay? So that's truth and judgment. We're looking at the object. Let's take a little closer at the, look at this. Notice these truths are expressed in the form of a statement or declarative sentence. This is my hand. That's the microphone. That's a picture of Our Lady. There are two possible kinds of such statements. Number one, self-evident propositions, and two, conclusions. So we can have self-evident propositions or we can have conclusions. Today we're only going to concern ourselves with self-evident propositions. Conclusions are reasoned to, but the truth of self-evident propositions is immediately known. They are not reasoned to. Aristotle called them understandings. They're not reasoned to, but like physical vision, they're just seen. We'll give a few examples. A whole is greater than its part. Well, as soon as we know the meaning of the word whole, we know the meaning of part, we can see immediately the truth in that. Okay? That's, that's a fundamental, self-evident proposition. The whole is greater than the part. It's important to notice, too, that unlike conclusions, which have to be reasoned to, you can't actually prove self-evident truths. Proof means a movement of the mind from what is known to what is unknown. But if something is already known, which a self-evident proposition is by definition, no proof is possible, okay? We already see the truth. It's self-evident. So here's a few self-evident propositions. The whole is greater than its part. No one can give what he does not have. Or nothing can give what it hasn't got. You can't get more out of less. Now, some self-evident propositions are so important they have names, like the principle of identity, A is A, this thumb is this thumb, or this thumb is this thumb. By the way, that's a really easy answer to somebody that says, is there no such thing as absolute truth? You can just stop and say, wait a minute, this thumb is this thumb, and this thumb is that thumb. I mean, it may not be very profound, but that's absolutely true, and will always be true that this thumb is this thumb, and that that thumb is that thumb. I mean, when people say this kind of stuff, and they deny there's absolute truth, one of the first things I think of is, can I borrow your credit card for a little while? I mean, put your money where your mouth is, pal. That'll set them up. Okay, anyway, that's a principle of identity. This thumb is this thumb. The principle of non-contradiction. A is not non-A. So a tree is not a non-tree. So nothing can be both true and not true at the same time in the same respect. To assert that a thing is both what it is and not what it is, 
is clearly absurd. So that's the principle of non-contradiction. And thirdly, the principle of the excluded middle. Between A and non-A, there's nothing. There's no middle. So a thing is either living or non-living. There's nothing in between. A thing is either living or non-living. There's nothing in between. A living thing is either a knower or a non-knower. That's the dividing point between plants, which have no knowledge, and things higher than plants. If a thing has sense knowledge, then it's an animal. There's no third thing between plant and animal because there's no middle between knower and non-knower, between a bee and a bee-not. A woman is either pregnant or not pregnant. There's nothing in between. Okay, so principle of identity, this thumb is this thumb. Principle of of non-contradiction, a tree is not a non-tree. Principle of the excluded middle, a woman is either pregnant or not pregnant. There's no middle term. Now, it's important for us to recognize that it is not possible to contradict these principles in fact, and to attempt to do so in thought is to make the act of thinking impossible. For example, to deny the principle of non-contradiction is nuts, since you have to use the principle in order to deny it. In our clueless age, this is done every time someone denies there isn't such a thing as objective truth. Why? Because the man claiming that there is no truth is asserting that his statement is true. But if the statement there is no truth is true, that means the statement is false. So if the statement is true, then it's false. You can see where this winds you up. No one can deny fundamental self-evident principles. If he does, he's a madman and you can't reason with him. The whole is greater than its part. No one can give what he does not have. Nothing gives what it hasn't got. You can't get more out of less. Principle of identity, A is A, this thumb is this thumb. The principle of non-contradiction, A is not not A. Nothing can be both true and false at the same time in the same respect. The principle of the excluded middle. Between A and non-A, there is nothing. A woman is either pregnant or not pregnant. There's nothing in between. A thing is either living or non-living. There's nothing in between. No one can deny fundamental self-evident principles. If he does, he's a madman and can't be reasoned with. All that by way of background. Let's turn to the problem. In a program on the Discovery Channel entitled How the Universe Works, Episode 1, The Big Bang, one of the new atheists, a physicist named Lawrence Krauss, makes the ridiculous statement, and I quote, The philosophers in ancient times used to say, How could something arise from nothing? And what's amazing to me is that the laws of physics allow that to happen. And it means that our whole universe, everything we see, everything that matters to us today, could have arisen out of precisely nothing. Close quote. The narrator then goes on to make the ridiculous understatement, quote, It's one of the biggest hurdles to understanding the Big Bang. First, you have to bind to the premise that something was created out of nothing. Understanding how nothing turned into something may be the greatest mystery of the universe. But, if you understand that, you start to understand the Big Bang. Close quotes. Understanding how nothing turned into something may be the greatest mystery of the universe. But, if you start to understand that, you start to understand the Big Bang. Well, no. If you start to understand how nothing turned into something you are either on a serious drug trip or completely out of your mind. Although, to be fair, 
either one of those conditions would undoubtedly help you to understand the Big Bang. So Lawrence Klaus claims that the whole universe can come from nothing. But nothing gives what it hasn't got. And you can't get more out of less. After viewing this, I bought Krauss's book. It's entitled, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. New York Times bestseller. Now, I'm not a fanny charity in the slightest. To state this book is filled, it's just brimming over with blasphemies in the first place. It, it's, he's got all kinds of unbelievable errors. It's really ignorant. I, I, I'm not, he's really ignorant. The guy doesn't do his homework when he's making strange comments on various things. And besides those things, he's really arrogant. Anyway, uh, at a minimum, we can say it's a seething mass of philosophical and theological errors. That's at a minimum. Let's just touch a few points to get the flavor. In the dust jacket of this brilliant work, a bestseller, as I say, we read... A Universe from Nothing is a provocative, game-changing entry into the debate about the existence of God and everything that exists. Forget Jesus, Krauss has argued. The stars died so you could be born. Gee, that sounds scientific to me. Opening it up to the very first printed words, praise for a universe from nothing, very first words, nothing is not nothing. I'm not making this up. Nothing is not nothing. Nothing is something. That's how a cosmos can be spawned from the void. A profound idea conveyed in a universe from nothing that unsettles some, yet enlightens others. Meanwhile, it's just another day on the job for physicist Lawrence Krauss. Neil deGrasse Tyson astrophysicist, American Museum of Natural History. Nothing is not nothing. Nothing is something. Remember the principle of non-contradiction. A is not non-A. To assert that a thing both is what it is and not what it is is clearly absurd. Evidently, this passes for great scientific thought in certain circles. Let's turn to Krauss's own words. In the following quote, we find out that indeed what he means by nothing is actually something. And I quote from Krauss. Quote, What drove me to write this book was this discovery that the nature of nothing had changed. That we've discovered that nothing is almost everything and that it has properties. That, to me, is an amazing discovery. It is to me, too. So how do I frame that? I frame it in terms of this question about something coming from nothing. And part of that is a reaction to these really pompous theologians who say, out of nothing, nothing comes, because those are just empty words. Close quote. Okay, so according to Krauss, nothing has a nature. The nature of nothing can change. Nothing has properties, and nothing is almost everything. And when we flip through the book, we see, like, as chapter 9 points out, chapter 9 is nothing is something, and chapter 10 is nothing is unstable. So nothing is something, nothing is unstable, nothing has a nature, the nature of nothing can change, nothing has properties, and nothing is almost everything. Now, the whole discussion of this uh, running through the book, the discussion of nothing that runs through the whole book, reminds me of a brief dialogue that Alice had with Humpty Dumpty and through the looking glass. 
I will read it with slight changes and apologies to Lewis Carroll. Through the looking glass, there's nothing for you, said Humpty Dumpty. I don't know what you mean by nothing, Alice said. Humpty Dumpty smiled contemptuously. Of course you don't, till I tell you. I meant there's almost everything. But nothing doesn't mean almost everything, Alice objected. When I use the word, Humpty Dumpty said in rather a scornful tone, it means just what I choose it to mean, neither more nor less. Well, Krauss, it's really hard not to call him Humpty Dumpty, Krauss titled this book, A Universe from Nothing, Why There is Something Rather Than Nothing. But more properly, I suggest this should be titled, A Universe from Almost Everything, with lots of digs at believers sprinkled liberally throughout. He certainly didn't answer his own question as to why there is something rather than nothing. And the afterword, or what we might call the backword, is written by the current head of the Lodge of the New Atheist, Richard Dawkins, the infamous Oxford evolutionist, who claims that this could potentially be the most important book with implications for supernaturalism since Darwinism. Cross comments, quote, Richard Dawkins wrote the afterword for the book, and I thought it was pretentious at the time, and it is, but I just decided to go along with it where he compares the book to the origin of species. There is one similarity between my book and Darwin's. What Darwin showed was that simple laws could, in principle, plausibly explain the incredible diversity of life. It's plausible that at some point chemistry became biology. What's amazing to me is that we're now at a point where we can plausibly argue that a universe full of stuff came from a very simple beginning, the simplest of all beginnings, nothing. Close quote. And Krauss closes his book with the suggestion that, quote, God is unnecessary, or at best redundant, close quote. Well, that doesn't sound scientific to me either. Let's close then with a quick look at these type of claims, evolutionary claims, in the light of self-evident principles, keeping in mind that no one can deny these, and if he does, he's a madman and can't be reasoned with. Step one. From nothing came something, at least according to Lawrence Krauss. But nothing gives what it hasn't got, and you can't get more out of less. Step two, from non-life came life. Inanimate matter became living matter, but nothing gives what it hasn't got. And you can't get more out of less. No matter how much electricity, radiation, etc. zaps non-living matter, life cannot arise from non-life. Step three, from so-called primitive life forms that have vegetative powers only. Now, organisms with vegetative powers are organisms like bacteria, mushrooms, uh, plants, and so forth. They can grow. Vegetative power means you can grow, nourish yourself, and reproduce. You don't have sensory power. You don't have eyes, for example. From so-called primitive life forms with vegetative powers only came more complex animals, now with sense powers. The most basic sense is touch. You know, touch, taste, smell, see, see, and, and, uh, okay, uh, and hear. So from that, that's step three. From primitive life forms of vegetative powers came complex animals. But nothing gives what it hasn't got. You can't get more out of less. Step four. From the non-intellective brute animals. Now, brute animals only have sensitive powers. Horses, dogs, cats, mice, apes, earthworms, etc. Evolved man. Man has a rational soul with an intellect and a free will. But nothing gives what it hasn't got, and you can't get more out of less. The whole process of atheistic evolution from start to finish is not only false, but it's absurd 
and simply not possible. The whole process consists of more coming from less, of things of themselves giving what themselves what they simply do not have to give. It's a joke. It's a real joke. Now what about the fact that in certain ecclesiastical documents, the position of theistic evolution is given some credibility, where it is held that God uh, might have assisted the process outlined above in order to be made possible. The fact of the matter is God could theoretically make anything possible. God could theoretically make any botched-up theory work, even one worse than the current model proposed. Perhaps the idea of theistic evolution might be entertained if the science were solid, but it's not. Today, we had the slightest peek behind the curtain when we considered Lawrence Krauss's work. Unfortunately, many in the church today naively treat evolution as a matter of fact, and therefore seeking explanations in God's role in the process. But the science isn't solid. It's a joke. It's just another failed 19th century materialistic theory, like Marxism. The reason evolution is so strongly defended in the academy is because it functions as a material myth to explain creation without God. And that is the only reason. The reason evolution is so strongly defended in the academy is because it functions as a materialist myth to explain creation without God. It's an agenda-driven fairy tale for adults. Rich and powerful as it appears, that society, which does its utmost to exclude God, bears within itself the seeds of death and cannot hope for a lengthy existence.